The Whitehall fight for money for Britain's defences is about to reach its peak. The Chief of the Defence Staff tells us how he has to plan for his budget day when war starts. Who's the first on the front line? The Red Cross. What is it that really can get to the heart of how we can reduce suffering during times of armed conflict? It's all about the money. Historically, our national spend on defence has never been as small as 2%. There's real concerns expressed by the United States and with emerging threats and also with gaps in defence capability. We've hollowed out our armed forces so deeply, it's a major problem. We have slightly deluded the public of late that we have a defence programme which, frankly, is unaffordable. So we're, to an extent, living a lie. The US is carrying three quarters of the burden, approximately, of defending Western Europe through the NATO alliance. If we want them to continue to carry that disproportionate load, we've got to carry our lighter load willingly. Across the other place, people are extremely worried, and I'm afraid it is no good, it doesn't wash, to say that actually we are providing the defence that is required for this country. The voices this week calling on the government to pay real money for defence. General Lord Dannett, MPs John Speller and Madeleine Moon, General Lord Horton, Chairman of the Commons Defence Committee Julian Lewis and Admiral Lord West. And this morning, the new Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, added his thoughts. I think the key question that we're answering at the moment is to analyse the threats that our country faces, to work out what capabilities you need to deal with these threats. And that's a complex question because the threat today may well not be the threat tomorrow. And then when we've done that is to put on the table what we believe the requirement is. And then there's a conversation to be had about how much money it will cost. Well, I'm joined by Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, Paul Rogers, and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Christopher, everyone's wading in now, aren't they? Why are they all having a go about defence spending this week? Well, it's crunch time. Very simple. Uh, last week, the Secretary of State for Defence and the Chancellor of the Exchequer met uh, to discuss the outline of what the uh, Secretary of State for Defence says that it's needed and why and how much is needed. The Chancellor of the Exchequer told him no way. No way was he going to get it at all. The Prime Minister appears to have backed up her Chancellor on this. And one of the reasons is that she's got a 20 billion promise of spend, new spend in the National Health Service, you see. And she has decided that the electorate, for example, if they heard that they were going to be, had to choose between a bunch of money coming to the Defence Ministry and something not happening in A&E, she knows which way they would vote. Next week, the Chancellor and the Defence Secretary will meet again. And then the decisions will be taken. And it will include things such as a 3% rise in defence defense, uh, pay for people in a service in three services which are not getting people so it's that important it then goes to a nato meeting or it'll be announced at around about the time of the nato meeting and that's the 11th and the 12th of july and the prime minister will get up and she will say we do spend our two percent uh, as nato demands and as, especially as president trump demands uh, this is how we're doing it this mm. is our backup etc and so it is crunch time 
are we going to get that money? And if not, what has to go yes. from the Defence Ministry? And on that note, uh, Professor Paul Rogers, have we reached a point where we should be rethinking what we spend our money on rather than a set list of what we've always spent it on in defence? I think very much so. I mean, if we want any kind of change in the defence budget, there are three things that got to be looked at first. One is, bluntly, the, the seriously failed wars of the last 15 or 20 years, Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, Libya. Now, that is not down to the military in themselves. They're often political decisions. But they've been pretty disastrous. One has to analyse why and how that can be avoided in the future. I think, secondly, the whole issue of defence management, what we're spending the money on, is the Navy bluntly being reduced almost to a two-ship Navy, able to put a ballistic missile submarine to sea and a carrier task group? We need to rethink that. And most of all, in relation to your question, we need to look at what the major challenges are facing us. And it looks like we're into an era yes. uh, of irregular war. And uh, we, that doesn't seem to be recognised. We're still thinking old ways. And in terms of, of talking about future threats and being able to predict what might be the problems of the future, the Chief of the Defence Staff has also been talking about equipment. Here's General Sinek Carter again. We've got to be sure that the way we buy stuff in the future is sufficiently adaptable that you have a sort of open systems approach to it. So as technology evolves, you're not left behind. Can you do that, Christopher? <sighs> no. You, that's one of the huge difficulties that I think, and, and some, to some extent that uh, Paul was referring to it, what you can't do is always believe you're going to fight the first 11. But you plan to fight badly, you plan to buy, fight the last war, or you think you need more than you do. And there's a perfect example at the moment where, in reality, the Defence Ministry and the government ought to be rethinking. For example, uh, we have two uh, aircraft carriers, one of them at sea. Um, was it a mistake? And if it was a mistake, was it a bad enough mistake? Uh, what it costs, how you run it, what it makes your, your army and your services look like. For example, force projection, etc. We're not in the business of force projection anymore, and that's why you have carriers. Uh, is somebody going to have the guts to turn around and say, I think we ought to look for another uh, way of using these vessels or perhaps even selling them? Paul Rogers, do you think that we've come to a point in defence of change forever in the way we think about the way it's funded because Christopher alluded to the, the we talked about the modernising defence programme, he talked about the upcoming NATO summit uh, and that Britain wants to prove that it's big on defence spending but how, are things in the process of changing forever in, in terms of the way the UK stands in the world? I think they are and I don't think we're, we're realising this. We still have this delusion that we're a great imperial power, we're not. The tragedy is there are hugely important roles for a middle ranking country like Britain that they could be playing in the kind of world we're heading towards, one in which you have far more marginalisation leading to very radical movements, revolts from the margins, and of course the world hugely constrained by climate disruption. Britain paradoxically is, a, in, a, is in a position uh, to be considered Great Britain, but it's a different kind of greatness and we can't get over the idea that we're still an imperial power. And specifically Christopher, um, we talked last week on a Facebook Live about money and money in defence and we asked the listeners if it's okay to take money from the defence budget perhaps and give it to the NHS. A big reaction wasn't there? It was a big, re big reaction. They said yes of course you, you, you've got to have defence. One of the first uh, problems and therefore one of the first uh, uh, results of government coming in for the first time is the promise to uh, defend the society 
they they come to govern and therefore that's seen in its widest forms and also its widest costs now at the moment you have to accept this and we were hearing this last time last week from people on facebook if you took let us say it's only theory if you took uh let us say the reorganization and the renewal of the uh, the nuclear submarine launch ballistic missile system and scrapped it. We no longer became a nuclear weapons power. The figures are that you could run A and E for 22 years. Mm. Now, if you go to the opinion polls, uh, you might find there's a lot of support for that idea. And that's what they were t- people were talking about. But they weren't sort of saying, you therefore you don't have defence. What sort of defence do you have? And just briefly, um, Paul Rogers, uh, speaking of the NATO summit upcoming, uh, it's been announced today that President Trump and President Putin will meet in four, d- four days after the summit. Set the date of the 16th of July in Helsinki, the capital of Finland. What do you make of this? It's interesting they're picking Helsinki because, of course, it's a country which is not neutral but does stand between the two in many ways. And the Helsinki, the, the Finns, actually have a very good understanding of the cultures of both the West and the East. I would just hope that both of those heads of state might learn a little bit from the Finnish culture and the Finnish experience. But more broadly, I think this summit is very difficult to predict because simply Mr Trump is very difficult to predict. It does indicate a possible easing of tensions, but that will be a great concern across Eastern Europe. But the problem here anyway is the unpredictability of the current American president. Until we're over that, I can't see a sort of planned way forward. It's going to be very easy for NATO. Still to come, the Battle of the Red Cross in wartime. Now, do service people get MOD backing when the going gets tough? One former soldier says no way. Major Robert Campbell, a retired Royal Engineer, is facing an eighth investigation into alleged war crimes in Iraq, for which he has previously been cleared. He and two other British soldiers were investigated after Iraqi teenager Saeed Shabram drowned in a river in 2003. They were all cleared of manslaughter. Well, Major Campbell has been speaking to our reporter, Simon Thornton. I, I think the biggest sense of betrayal I have is actually towards the army. Um, the army didn't support us correctly um, with the investigations and they were aware that the investigations were ongoing before we did and they disclosed all of our personal information to IHAT without our consent or knowledge. Um, the question is who within the army is looking out for our interests and the answer is there is nobody. And when you think of the Armed Forces Covenant what, what do you think when you... Look I think the Armed Forces Covenant is a fine thing if it were applied but unfortunately it doesn't appear to be. Um, I can't readily think of any civilian equivalent of an investigation that's gone on seven times only for someone to declare we're not happy with those seven investigations we're going to have an eighth one Uh, and I would challenge uh, the supporters within Parliament of the Armed Forces Covenant to suggest an equivalent where that has happened. I believe we've been directly disadvantaged by the fact that we're in the Armed Forces that the goalposts can consistently change over 15 years in which we are the victims of those legal changes. And the, the comment central panel that's in Parliament today, do you feel quite well supported by members outside of the armed forces? Um, yeah, I've been immensely well supported by many members of um, Parliament from all parties. Um, I think Johnny Mercer obviously needs a particular mention uh, for his, his subcommittee that led to the uh, disbandment of IHAT. But there's also members from other parties such as Madeleine Moon um, and... Um, 
Ruth Smith, who have also been very supportive towards fair treatment of soldiers um, following their service and certainly in, in the light of legacy investigations. Now, the Iraq fatality investigations, they, they, the team says that they're not concerned with determining criminal or civil liability of any personnel involved um, in the case, but rather establishing the facts of cases and what lessons could be learned. So mm -hmm. it sounds like it's not criminal, uh, criminal investigation like previous that you've had. Mm -hmm. uh, why are you still so against that? Because, one, I've been investigated seven times, and secondly, um, there are seven other investigations from which they can establish as many facts as they so wish. I don't think there's any particular point to this investigation because um, if the family are convinced that their boy has been murdered, I'm not entirely sure that Sir George Newman's likely to change that. Secondly, my objection is, is this is a, a, an, an inquiry that's unique to Iraq. We're not doing it in Bosnia and Kosovo. We're not doing this for Afghanistan. We're certainly not doing this for the fight against ISIS. So why is this one conflict unique in that it has its own legal structure? I don't think that's right. So would you say that you're in favour or against a statute of limitations being applied? I'm in favour of people being held to account if they've done something wrong, where clearly we, we have not. Um, I'm also in favour um, of people being treated, treated fairly. I don't feel that British soldiers are currently being treated fairly um, in, in the way the investigations are handled. So what would you want to see happen? I, was, I would like to see um, more independence from the Ministry of Defence with the way that um, investigations are handled, um, because at the moment they all seem to be directed and funded by the Ministry of Defence in order to meet um, their um, needs, such as diverting liability away from them. Uh, I'd also like to see a much better and simpler structure for people that are under investigation to receive the support they need, whether it's financial or pastoral. Um, the problem is, is it's left to the chain of command who are ill-equipped uh, because they do not know um, the legal ramifications of how a soldier will be put forward through an investigation. Major Robert Campbell. Well, the Ministry of Defence says about the Iraq fatality investigations, the welfare of our personnel is of the utmost importance and we have a legal obligation to ensure the full facts of the alleged incidents are known. The Iraq fatality investigations do not conduct criminal investigations of soldiers. Cases only take place once the prospect of criminal prosecution is eliminated and individuals are granted anonymity. Christopher Lee, um, in this particular case, what, what, why would there be an eight investigation. And that's possibly, possibly uh, because one or other of the agencies that are involved or could be involved has got new evidence. And that is probably the only way. You see, what you've got to remember is that the Iraq fatality, uh, uh, fatality investigations uh, are not part of any civil or, or criminal liability. They're not there to inspect it. Um, they're referred to the MOD, taking any further, after they've decided, look, there's a realistic prospect of a criminal conviction, uh, and that all the investigations that we've been doing have been concluded. Now, if you're actually going to the MOD and saying, we think we, we can get a conviction on this, it is a different type of uh, a, a military Did accusation. Unlike, say, for the civilian thing, the the, the, uh, the People will only be prosecuted if there's a reasonable chance that they will be uh, that they will be convicted. I mean, the uh, 
the, the Justice Department won't do it otherwise. And so it is the important thing. Is there new evidence and why should it be opened? Right now, when a war starts, the first people in are not the armies, but the International Committee of the Red Cross. They've been doing this since 1863. Others come, others go. But the Red Cross and Red Crescent have a single mandate to make sure that wars do not usurp the international laws that protect service people as well as civilians. Well, I've spoken to Dr Helen Durham, who is Director of International Law and Policy at the Red Cross. The ICRC, as your listeners hopefully will be aware, has a particular mandate under international law to work in the area of the laws of war. Uh, and we work very closely with authorities and with militaries and with non-state armed groups. And about 15 years ago, we did a big report um, looking at what is it that actually allows those people that are fighting to use restraint, not from a legal point of view, but from a psychological point of view. And we decided we needed to update that a couple of years ago. So for for example, one of the things the report aims to do is to find out does training, pre-deployment training of the military, of all the different forces, as well as non-state armed groups, does that have an impact? Is it the law that changes behaviour? Is it their relationships between the military individuals themselves? What is it that really can get to the heart of how we can reduce suffering during times of armed conflict? So the report that is uh, out this week is something that really goes beyond the law but connects the law with what we need to do to ensure that we fight it right, as we say. And what are the main conclusions of the Roots of Restraint report? Well, one of the big conclusions, which as Director of International Law and Policy I was quite relieved, is that training does make a difference. So the fact that uh, I know the UK military, but many militaries across the world do do training, it has an impact. I've over thousands of military officers in countries such as the Philippines, such as Australia and, and across the world were interviewed and you could see the indication that it does make an impact. But the most important thing about the report is it's not whether you train, it's how you train. And it was very clear that training that is intense and replicates often battlefield situations, the intensity of battlefield field is much better than getting a group of military in a room to give them a big long lecture about the laws of war. So it's how you train. And what was really interesting, if I may say so, Kate, was the uh, difference between different countries of the, the, the persuasion. For example, in the Philippines, the training is more effective if it's done by an expert in international law. Whereas in a country like Australia, where I come from, the expertise is not so much the legal expertise, but whether you've had experience on the ground, have you had dust on your boots, so to speak. So that means across the world, we're going to have to be better as the ICRC in tailoring our training to make sure we have the most traction that we can. So are you saying then that actual training of warring parties could potentially prevent an atrocity? Absolutely. So we've now, we've sort of hopefully always known this. We've been around for 150 years. And as guardians of the Geneva Conventions and the additional protocols, we've always engaged with um, teaching those who are going to be involved in conflict what the laws of war are, that you cannot attack civilians, that you must distinguish between civilians and combatants. Um, but we've got really hard evidence now to show that that doesn't have an impact. Now, of course, there are many groups out there, sometimes non-state armed groups, but also some militaries that um, don't either train nor necessarily in some non-state armed groups see the legitimacy of, um, of 
the laws of war and the Geneva Conventions. Mm. I was a, a young delegate uh, many years ago in Papua New Guinea. I can tell you it's really hard to talk to the tribal leaders about Geneva Conventions. They sort of look at me and say, isn't that where there's so a how lot of chocolate? How do you get through to people like that who just simply do not respect international humanitarian law? Well, that was the second major finding of the study is the mm. need and the effectiveness of linking it into local culture and local understandings. So not going and talking about Article 27 of the Fourth Geneva Protocol, or the Fourth Geneva Convention or Protocols, um, but actually finding a correlation in their own culture. So, for example, in my department, I would have um, about 140 lawyers, experts in the laws of war globally, but increasingly I'm employing uh, individuals who are experts in Sharia law, who have an understanding of Islamic law, and can actually hold seminars in places like Islamabad about the laws of war and the limitations in conflict through the prism of um, Sharia law. And there are many, many elements in just about all cultures that talk about the respect for the individual. So the second major finding of of this, of this um, uh, Roots of Restraint study was that in certain circumstances we need to be more creative and listen to co local norms and cultures embedding the same principles of the Geneva Conventions but using other ways to convince those that there is benefits to limit suffering during times of armed conflict. One quick example is uh, my colleagues in South Sudan were very worried about a particular group called the White Army. They were a cattle herder group that would bring be brought together very quickly to fight and they fought very, very, um, a lot of atrocities when they were engaged in conflict. Now, my colleagues noticed that when they weren't cattle herding or actually fighting, they liked to wrestle. And so they started talking to these individuals, these very powerful warriors, if I put it that way, about when you wrestle, you don't run over there and wrestle a three-year-old girl. And it's like, no, of course not. We're warriors. Warriors wrestle warriors. And they start talking about the necessity and the benefits of um, uh, protecting a civilian population. And in that experience, we did, I think it was about a 20% reduction in atrocities. So we're not going to eradicate everything, but it's really important to build on what we know. And you use military delegates, former military personnel, to communicate with um, armed forces when doing your work. How useful are they? So we have probably all over, over 80 former military officers, very very often very senior. We've got some fantastic British ones, you know, colonel level or above, who have seen active duty and they can go, particularly with the more structured non-state armed groups, the rebel groups um, that have a structure and command and control structure, they go and they explain that actually these laws of war are there for a practical purpose too. Save your military strategy to attacking the enemy's uh, installations, not civilian installations. So just as much as uh, lawyers like to talk to lawyers, we've over many years realised that the military like to talk to the military. So here in the UK too, we have a very good relationship in engaging with the Ministry of Defence, the Joint Forces Command, uh, the Permanent Joint Headquarters and units. So it's, it's a very privileged relationship that the International Committee of the Red Cross has with um, military across the world. You were a driving force behind getting rape accepted as a war crime. What difference has that made? Look, I think it's made uh, a difference in the sense that it's no longer... Uh, the case that say if I'm training military or non-state armed groups I can look at them and say I can't guarantee that you're going to get prosecuted but I can't guarantee that you won't and the International Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia, for Rwanda, the International Criminal Court have strong 
jurisprudence, so strong statements and very you know, up to 30 years imprisonment for the use of sexual violence during times of armed conflict. So whilst, once again, I think we have really, you know, a lot of uh, laws here domestically to uh, to make uh, sexual, to make rape illegal, it doesn't change all behaviour, but it's a powerful tool for advocating that sexual violence during times of conflict is not inevitable and it's not acceptable. And finally, Dr. Durham, what is the biggest frustration of your job? Oh, that's a good one. I think uh, cynicism, to be honest. I think um, we did a recent uh, study which looked at our 17,000 people globally, what they thought about the laws of war. People in uh, war-torn situations, Yemen, Afghanistan, Syria, were so much more positive, 20% more positive, that the laws of war made a difference to their lives, where the P5 countries, uh, most people asked, thought that it didn't matter at all. So there's many, many challenges, but I think this desire to move forward and make the world a better place without losing hope is probably the thing that keeps me awake at night. That was Dr Helen Durham, Director of International Law and Policy at the Red Cross. Well, listening to that and chipping in there was Christopher Lee, our Defence Analyst and Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, Paul Rogers. Uh, Christopher, put all of what she was saying in the context of a world in which we have a new phenomenon, large numbers of stateless people. There are probably, probably about 62 million stateless people or displaced people in the world today. That's the size of the population of the United Kingdom, for example. Um, we have to determine what happens to such a large movement of people. It isn't simply somebody going into a refugee camp for five years. We're talking here about unprecedented movements of people, and we're talking about movements in the most inhospitable uh, arrangements, places with, with, with very, very few options of getting out of it. That is an element which, on the move, crosses state borders, interferes with state borders and the way other countries sort of uh, exist. And that is one way, one way that you think of going to war. And when you put it in the context of, uh, of the Red Cross and what it has to do in those circumstances, and you hear her saying, for example, 140 lawyers Sharia lawyers, as well as everybody else's lawyer, then you realise that it's a, it's a bigger problem than just, you know, what, send three quid and give everybody a blanket. Mm, Professor Paul Rogers, the concept of the movement of people on an unprecedented scale is a relatively new study in the causes of war, isn't it? It is. Uh, I mean, we've had these, these kinds of movements before on a smaller scale, and most famously, the huge numbers of dispossessed and displaced people after the Second World War, and it took 15 years to the end of the 1950s to really wrestle with that. No, you're absolutely right. I think this is one of the probably biggest single issues for our time and for the next 20 or 30 years and it is the combination of economic factors but you know one comes back time and time again to this and this is what the fieldwork people are saying it's climate disruption already and that's going to add hugely to it so in a sense I think the kinds of problems we face on the security side in the future as Christopher said are going to be revolved around much more mass movement and pressures on movement of people we've not yet thought this through and you see the political reaction to even fairly small-scale migratory pressures as we're seeing with Italy at the moment for Italy example. Hungary um, the United States many countries oh. I wonder if I wonder if we're actually getting to the point with when we're talking about this mass of people in different contexts, where the United Nations generally we're going to have to think of new laws that govern people who are stateless, who are powerless, and they are there to protect them, give them new not. How would you chances. do that, and how would you enforce that? 
I think that you would actually have to set it out as an example that you're, I mean, I find it difficult to sort of understand, but in concept, creating a new state, a movable state, but this on such a huge scale that there should be laws to protect them as well as the people that they may uh, invade. Um, you, you, you just say, right, that is a new phenomenon. We've not come across it. How do you put that in the um, modernising defence programme, Paul Rogers? <laughs> well, this is the problem. I have a, a big problem with the nature of defence thinking in Britain at present. Uh, you have uh, a government which is going one way. It is not facing much opposition because the Labour Party is always afraid of being called anti-patriotic. There is not the new thinking going on very much, mm. a little bit in some of the defence think tanks. Otherwise, it's being done by individual think tanks mm. that are usually grossly underfunded. OK, just before we finish today, let's uh, throw ahead to Saturday because it is Armed Forces Day. Uh, Christopher, how important event, an event do you think it is? Oh, it's extraordinarily important. This is Armed Forces Day in a week that Number 10 and the Treasury are basically saying, can we afford British Armed Forces? Well, that's a good boost for them, isn't it? Paul Rogers? Well, I think the key, the extraordinary thing is it continues. The armed forces broadly in Britain are popular. The wars they're called upon to fight aren't. And that, I think, is something really to reflect on. Will you be watching the, the coverage of it, Christopher? Do you know I won't? <laughs> really? Do you know I'm, no, I'm going on. I tell you what, I'm going off in a dirty old boat that is actually clapped out, <laughs> and I should be sailing to Ostend to deliver it. And I think I've got the best of the day. <laughs> On that note, we will leave it for today. Professor Paul Rogers, thank you for your time. Christopher Lee, thank you as ever for joining us. Do check out our video on the Forces News Facebook page and send us your comments. Or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show as a podcast. But from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. We'll be back at the same time next week. Bye-bye for now.